every two weeks, I would call her for payroll, which was about 20,000. So imagine 12 phone calls, all groveling to your mother-in-law to borrow money. And that's, that was my reality. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete, proven, step-by-step -step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Jonathan Slane. Jonathan, are you ready to rock? Dude, I am always ready to rock. Let's do it. And I, something tells me you're from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the city of rock yeah. and roll. You know it. Born yeah. and raised, Cleveland, Ohio. Rock, <laughs> Cleveland rocks. <laughs> well, let me introduce totally. you. Let me introduce you to the audience. Jonathan's book, Rock the Recession, how successful leaders prepare for, thrive during, and create wealth after downturns, came out in September 2019 and is a number one Amazon bestseller. And we really all should read it now. Jonathan coaches high growth leadership teams across the United States and helps them implement the entrepreneurial operating system, also known as Traction. He focuses on working with entrepreneurial niche specialty firms and large corporations spending over 100 days per year working with teams just like yours. Jonathan was valedictorian of his graduating class and had the highest GPA ever in the history of Shaker Heights High School, where he was also voted next Bill Gates and least likely to lose his virginity. And we have something in common. First, we grew up in very close proximity. I grew up in Hudson, Ohio, and you grew up in the Cleveland area. And we also have something in common. I was voted something when I was in high school. It was least likely to succeed. So now, Jonathan, take a minute and fill in further tidbits about your life. Well, I think we've both proven them wrong, Andrew, seeing as I have two kids. So definitely figured that piece out. And just excited to be here, excited to be on the show. Love the premise of what you're doing and the opportunity to share with the audience. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, let's get right into it. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. So, Andrew, I, I have to first disclose I'm a recovering investment banker. So that's where I want to start is that, you know, I worked 80 to 100 hours a week for two years, so in people years, it's really four years of experience, but ultimately got a call from my brother-in-law one day asking me if I wanted to help him out. He wanted to go look at some gym franchises that he was interested in investing in. I went to Denver with him, and on the flight home from Denver to Cleveland, I said, hey, why don't I leave the bank and I'll start opening up these gyms with you? And that, <laughs> that was the worst investment that I ever made. So what happened was that we got home and we actually opened up our first gym ever in your hometown, Hudson, Ohio. Oh my so such God. a small world. Yeah, such a small world. First one ever opened up in Hudson, Ohio. It's actually still there. I forgot to tell you when we were doing the pre-interview, 
but it's still there. It's been there for over a decade over in the first in Maine shopping center. Um, so I don't want to ruin the story for the audience because that unit survives, but we, we grew the thing very fast, Andrew. What happened was in less than five years, we had five units operating called Fitness Together, all one-on-one -on -one personal training studios, franchises. And so we had five locations across Cleveland, had 25 employees. I was uh, 25 years old and had no idea what I was doing. And we had, we broke all, uh, franchise records all over. We had the most personal training sessions in a year. We had the most locations. We had the most revenue of any group. And then the Great Recession hit. And so I ended up, I didn't have a plan. My plan was I borrowed a few bucks from my mother-in-law. And by a few bucks, Andrew, I mean a quarter of a million dollars. And I see you're, I see you're already laughing. The worst I'm crying. part I haven't even told you. I'm <laughs> crying. <laughs> the, the worst part, dude, is that it, was, it wasn't one phone call. It was every two weeks I would call her for payroll, which was about 20000 So imagine 12 phone calls all groveling to your mother-in-law to borrow money. And that's, that was my reality. So borrowed it. And that's what kept us afloat through the great recession. And, you know, at this point I've paid her back. So the good news is Thanksgiving isn't awkward anymore. And my brother-in-law still has the gyms. He bought my shares in 2017. I really got into doing business coaching, consulting, and, you know, at some point in 2017, he said, hey, you're never really here anymore. You know, why don't I, I buy your half of the gyms and I'll do this. And so that was my worst investment ever. Okay. So tell us, what are the lessons that you learned from this experience? So, Andrew, I, I knew you were going to ask me this. I really thought about it. And I don't know if you, the audience, have a pen. I'm going to give you my top lesson. The first thing that everyone needs to do, the first thing, run a credit check on your mother-in-law. <laughs> so, sorry, I yeah. can't help myself. Yeah, the lessons that I learned are that you've got to have a plan. Yep. So my issue was I didn't have a plan for what we would do if we ever hit a downturn. And so a lot of the book is because people shouldn't have to borrow money from their mother-in-law. And so by having a plan, what I mean is that like, so right now we're shooting this video right on the heels of the coronavirus sweeping through Asia. We're just talking about how China, Korea are past it. The United States still to really face the brunt of it. But if you want to rock a recession, you've got to have a plan. You've got to figure it out in the cool, rational light of day. It's very tough to figure out what you want to do in the emotional heat of the night. I mean, we're all human and humans make notoriously bad decisions when they're stressed out, when they're emotional. And that's the biggest thing I learned. It was very tough for me to figure out what to do when I was in my office at the gym and people were coming to my door worried that they were going to lose their jobs. When all of our creditors were calling us wanting to know when we were going to pay our bills or if we could pay our bills. Very tough to make good decisions and execute then. So I lost a lot of time. I probably borrowed twice as much as I would have had to if I had just had a better plan than being curled up in the fetal position in the corner mm. of my office. Mm -hmm. So I know that's probably not that's shocking, great. Number but one. for me, it's, yeah. So that, the concept of a plan, you know, one of the things, is there any other things that you'd add that you learned from it? 
Yeah, it's the idea. So it's having a plan. And one plan for recession planning is having a downside plan. So mm. I call it an emergency break. So right. if you know you're in a recession and you're in a discretionary business like personal training and you know people are going to cut back, then you, know, you need to have a plan for what you're going to do to reduce expenses, cut overhead, do layoffs and survive. That's one part of it, Andrew. But the other part, the reason we actually wrote the book was not to regurgitate that pretty common wisdom for recessions. It was actually to say, look, these recessions could really be opportunities. You know, if you're an entrepreneur and once every seven to 10 years, there's a major disruption, that's an opportunity to pounce. You know, maybe it's an opportunity for me. I wish I had thought to pivot to small group training, mm. you know, or to lower my prices right away or to do in-home training or virtual training that we could have, we could have done all those things during the great recession for cheaper than what we were doing. We didn't have a plan. We didn't pivot. We just tried to stick to business as usual and we got crushed by it. So right. at this point, I think those are the two biggies. One is really to just have a downside plan. And the second, yep. and maybe even more importantly, is you know, have a plan to be able to pounce. Yep. Okay. Got it. And let me summarize some of the things I take away from your story. I mean, the first one is that, well, in some ways you were lucky. You could argue that you failed. Number one mistake that most people make is that they fail to do their research. When you made a decision on that plane after a very short amount of time researching it, you know, there's no way you could have known enough information at that time. Now, the good news is that, you know, it managed to work itself out. But the other thing that I take away is, you know, a lot of people when investing in the stock market, for instance, you know, people like to be value investors and be like Warren Buffett. And that is mm -hmm. that we, you know, we basically invest for the long run. If something goes down a bit, we buy more of it. You know, we don't really think about what to do when the share prices really fall. And this is where I always have used and advocate most beginners, particularly to use stop losses when they are investing in the stock market. And you know, for a professional investor may say, uh, I don't need that because I really understand the company well. Well, for most people, they just don't. And so a stop loss is a little bit like this downside plan. And what I say is that it, you know, you predetermine future action. And then it's a little bit like when an airplane's flying and the left, you know, engine goes out, you go straight to the manual, you go straight to the book. There are steps that you've already got there to take and you begin to methodically take those steps. Now, yeah, Andrew, I, I love that. I, I completely agree. I think it's like if you have the recession plan and you've got it, you put it under glass, and then when you're seeing on CNN, when you're seeing on Fox, when you're seeing on your uh, local stations that we're in a recession, you can calmly walk over to the glass, break it, take out your plan and start to execute. So I completely agree with you. Now, the, the issue about this plan that's so hard, in my opinion, is not the idea of writing it. It's the idea of even thinking about it. Because when times are good, nobody, who's going to sit down and write down that plan? 10 years of an economic boom, a stock market boom in, in the US, as an example. How, you know, how is it that somebody can really, you know, when all you're doing is trying to capture and ride the wave, you're not thinking about that wave crashing. What is your advice for people to, to be able to do that? Because it is, you know, you even may see that the people would read your book, but they didn't do it. What's your best advice to encourage people to do that 
throughout the cycle, not just obviously when things go bad, you've got to quickly put together your plan, but to do it when the cycle's good. Yeah, I, Andrew, for me, it's a way of life. So I don't want to reveal all my neuroses to the, the audience. But since, you know, the topic of your podcast, and we're going deep here, I really look at it as life planning. So for me, it's beyond just having a recession plan for my business. There's a, a life plan that I have for what I want to get out of this year, what I want to get out of the next decade, what I ultimately want to get out of life before it's all over. And so I think part of it is to embrace it and to have a plan for everything. I think at least in the US, it feels like we spend more time planning for the holidays than it does that we spend planning our lives. And so I'm not content to just let the winds take me where they will. I really mm. want to have a plan for where I want to go every step of the way. So that's the level at which I believe in this stuff. Got and it. then I would, the other point real quick is just that I don't think we're speaking to everyone. I'm really speaking to the entrepreneurs that understand that there's always going to be a disruption. Look, it's like the seasons of the year, right? There's spring, summer, fall, winter. And all we know is that winter is always coming. And so same thing with recessions, whether it's caused by a virus, whether it's caused by an interruption in the stock market, or it could be an oil shock, or it could be the housing bubble that caused the Great Recession, or it could be the dot-com bubble. Any one of these can put us in recession. In fact, even agnostic of what's going on in the economy, Andrew, if you lose your biggest client, you're in a recession. Exactly. Or if your five best employees leave, go across the street and start a competing business, you're in a recession. There's plenty. We all know that we're going to have recessions in our life. So to not have a plan to me would be like going up in that airplane that you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. and not having a plan for what if the left engine goes out. Got it. That's great. You know, I want to tell you a story, Jonathan, about something that happened in my own business. And that was that we had an opportunity to kind of, let's just say, buy a competitor in another country, in this case, Vietnam. And it was actually going to be a partnership. And there was a lot of good to this thing. And so what we did is, this is for our coffee business, Coffee Works. And what we did is that Dale, my best friend who runs the business, also from Hudson, Ohio, by the way. <laughs> Wild. Dale Lee. So he was pretty excited about the idea. And so basically what we decided was that he was going to research this as deeply as he could. And that he, once he got all the information he could possibly get, and by going there, meeting with people, going through all the scenarios, putting together his, his sales forecasts, then he would present that to me. And I would not criticize anything about that. Now, this sounds a little bit strange because, I mean, that's the whole point of considering a business plan. No, I would celebrate all the positive things that he saw in that, look at how those could potentially work, map out if they work, what would it mean from a revenue, from a cost perspective. Then, once we did that, and he did a great job at presenting all the numbers, went through everything, and then we decided that we wouldn't give any feedback or discuss much about it at that time, except, you know, ask some questions about that. And then, mm -hmm. then we decided we would meet again next week. And so we met again one week later and we decided that this meeting would be everything that could go wrong with this investment. And when you separate your research into the upside and the downside, it's remarkable how it helps because it was no longer a threat to his idea or something like that. It was like, we've agreed, we're gonna tear this thing apart. And when we tore it apart, we went from this 
jubilation and excitement about this idea until by the time we tore it apart, we realized it just wasn't that attractive and we decided not to do it. So I highly recommend, you know, people to think about return and risk in two buckets. And that can sometimes help you to create the plan that Jonathan's talking about, about having throughout your life that you have both an upside and a downside plan. What do you think about that, Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, I, I love that. And I was furiously trying to remember the name of a book I just finished. It's the story of Blackstone and its founder, Steve Schwartzman. And he talks in the book specifically about the power of red teaming and investment. And I think that's really what you're referring yep. to is that, look, yep. a lot of times, you know, humans, we have an optimism bias. It's one of our cognitive biases. So we always want to look at all the positives, the upside. And so they attribute their success at Blackstone, one of their core principles is to really have a meeting before they make every investment. And the entire meeting just has to be picking the deal apart, trying mm -hmm. to come up with reasons not to do it, because it creates a culture of if all you can bring up at the meeting are problems, then everybody feels comfortable doing that. Whereas in a lot of corporate cultures and really in a lot of discussions, nobody wants to be that skunk at the garden party the one that is the first one to maybe bring up something that doesn't work because the boss is excited about the idea. You know, so I love that idea that to really get around that cognitive bias, that humanity, if we want to save ourselves from our own humanity, yep. we need to make sure that we give ourselves permission and just come up with a set way to do that. So yeah, mm. I'm completely with you. And perhaps if I had done that with my deal, I may have avoided having to borrow borrow from my mother-in-law. Yep, yep. And the last thing for me is I remember going, I, I went to school at Kent State. I didn't have any money and I managed to get a woman, Catherine O'Brien from the Ohio State Disabilities that gave me, because you're a recovering investment banker, but I'm a, I'm a recovering <laughs> much worse. There's a 12-step a program out of Akron, Ohio, in fact, that is what I belong to. And I was... I was broken at the age of 18, 19, and it was the 12 steps that really got me back. And this woman gave me a grant from the state of Ohio for $500 that got me into Kent State. And that's where I started my education. And I remember walking in, I first thought I had to study psychology, but then I decided, you know, let's check out some other classes. And I walked into this economics class and there was 200 people in the class. The teacher walked in and I was kind of sitting in the back of the class. Right. And he said, Good morning, everybody. There's 200 people in this room. Let's just draw a line down the middle. 100 of you will be gone by the end of this semester. And out of the 100 that remain, I'm only giving 10 A's. Let's get started. And I thought, damn it, I'm going to get that A. <laughs> and I, the next time I, I was in that class, I moved right to the front row. And it inspired me. And that guy, can't even remember his name, but he, he sparked the seeds of, of learning in me. But what he taught that you know, I remember very well because I studied it very hard is that when boom times happen, when interest rates are low, when, when everybody's excited, marginal players come in, they have access to capital and they get into the, any business area. And when they get into that business area, basically what eventually starts happening is that you get oversupply and then profit margins start to fall. And then next thing you know, you go into some sort of slowdown, crash, you know, whatever it is. And those marginal prayers, only a small number of them will actually survive that. And that's part of the natural nature of it. And that the, the stronger ones are able to emerge from that. And what he basically taught me was that 
human behavior and economics have explained this for a long time. And, you know, the only one, you know, the one caveat for the U.S. and what's happened over the years is that the Fed never let the interest rates go up. And the result is, is that it fueled a flame of, you know, of entrepreneurs coming into businesses that they probably shouldn't have been in. And that is a huge part of what fueled the bubble because I think it's from my perspective as a financial guy and what I've told my clients over time is that the problem is definitely not coronavirus. The problem is that we were in a massive bubble, a massive amount of debt, and we were at the peak of profitability and that stock market rise was driven by tax cuts and extremely low interest rates. It is completely obvious that that were all, those were all the factors driving it. And just as much as it's, I would say, it's probably obvious to most people that if you completely stop your economy, you're gonna cause hundreds of millions of people to suffer immensely. It's completely obvious to me, but I think at this point, it won't be obvious until after it's done. So that's some thoughts on that. And I, is there any other things that you'd wrap up for this part of the discussion? Yeah, well, I think the quote is the Warren Buffett one. When the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. And I agree with you that there were a lot of people swimming naked. We published the book in September of last year because we were looking at the yield curve and we were looking at the yield curve inversion. And I don't want to bore the audience. I'm kind of an economic geek, mm -hmm. but that one economic indicator has predicted all the recessions that we've had, at least in the U.S. since the end of World War II. So when we saw- Including um, this one that, now. It, it there were some doubters. Yeah, so I, yep, yep, exactly. And so again, none of us knew that this black swan event would put us into a recession. If it wasn't this, it's like I said earlier, spring leads to summer, summer leads to fall, fall always leads to winter. And we had sown the seeds of this recession. It was just the straw that broke the camel's back in this case was the coronavirus, COVID-19. It could have been a lot of other things. But when we're playing it back in the future, coming out of a recession, it is going to be harder to get capital. Banks are not going to want a loan. And so that will mean that entrepreneurs will have to either have stronger, better ideas or be better, faster, or cheaper than their competitors. And that's the, the basics of how the economy will get jumpstarted again. I'm just hoping that, you know, the audience listening today will figure out how they can rock the recession and then ultimately rock the recovery because we're all going to have massive opportunities, especially if you're smart enough to listen to your awesome show. Yeah. So I think rather than ask you about what one action that you would take, what I'm going to ask you sure. about is what would be one takeaway that the listeners would get? if they bought your book and read it, you know, what's one, one thing that they would gain from that? And then I'm sure there's much more, but then I think people can decide, hey, I want to I wanna read this. Yeah, well, so we, we didn't write the book just based on my experience. It was really going through and doing the academic research, reading all of the scientific studies on past recessions to try to draw out of them the golden nuggets to ask people that actually made money in recessions how they did it and what was different and to pull that together. So there's some of that anecdotal wisdom, Andrew, but the top thing is that we've got a 20 question recession readiness assessment in the book. And so if you get the book, if you take the assessment, you'll be able to benchmark how well prepared you are for the recession. And I think that's the top value add is that instead of it being subjective, 
you'll get a score from zero to 100. Zero is not at all prepared. 100 is looking forward to the recession because of how prepared you are. You'll get your score, and from there, then you can start to decide what you want to do with that information. Maybe it'll be a life plan. Maybe it'll be a recession plan for your business. Maybe it'll be a mixture of both, but at least you'll have a baseline for how prepared you are versus everybody else. And I can tell you that as of today, the average score that we're seeing is a 38. Mm. People are not very well prepared. So if you get the book, take the assessment, or if you don't want to get the book, you can just go to recession.com. Yes, that is my website. <laughs> and, and you can take it, the assessment there. It's free. But yeah, so recension.com to take the assessment. Or if you want to go on Amazon, if you can even get stuff there right now, you can get Rock the Recession there too. Got it. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I am trying to be at home in Cleveland more. I had traveled a lot over 2019. So I spent, you know, like, like you said in the introduction, did over 100 days a year of strategic planning with teams. Over 50 of those this past year were outside of Cleveland. And so this year, 2020, I'm focused on being at home more, having more virtual clients. So actually for me, a lot of this has been using this corona crisis to really get better at my virtual meeting capabilities. Mm. So to figure out how I can do virtual meetings, how I can make this work. So I don't know, the, the universe must have heard me in part because this is helping to make me have to hustle faster to get here to where I wanted to go. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Jonathan, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones who has turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Just want them to rock the recession, want them to be able to be in position to rock the recovery so that they never have to borrow money from their mother-in-law like I did. Thanks so much for having me on. Rock on. Yeah, rock and roll. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.